So we're going to start a new, a new series today in a new book of the Bible we haven't looked at in a while. I'll tell you what that is in a minute, but before we get to that, I want to uh, ask you one of those loaded questions, and uh, it goes like this. How do you feel about change? How do you feel about change? I don't mean, I don't mean nickels and dimes and quarters. I mean when things change around you. How do you, how do you feel about that? Does change excite you? Are you one of those people that it, you just love change? Or does change intimidate you? Does it maybe terrify you? Or are you somewhere in between? It seems to me there are three kinds of people in the world when it comes to our response to the idea of change. First of all, there are the people that, that love the idea of change. If something's going to change, they're, they're the first people in line. They're, they're the ones we call usually the early adopters, right? They love whether... Whenever they see something might be changing, they want to try out the new thing. They get bored if, it's, if there is no change. They get restless when change is not happening. And sometimes these people will even like, they'll just change just for the sake of change because they want, they want something different. We're going to call these folks um, the radicals. Okay? They're the, maybe that's not a nice name, I don't know, but those people are the radicals. Then at the other end of the spectrum are those who absolutely hate the idea of change. They are happy the way things are thank you very much, and they don't want anything to ever mess up their routine. They're cool the way it is. Now, often they will tolerate change, but sometimes they actively resist it. And we're going to call these people the reactionaries. Okay, that may be a little bit mean too, I don't know, but we have the radicals, and then we have the reactionaries, and then there are folks in between. Their first response to the idea of change is probably suspicion. Like, wait, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to change? That's often because they've been burned by change, some kind of unwise change that has happened to them, or it's sometimes just because these folks have a certain respect for tradition, and they figure, well, there must be some good reason why we do things the way we do them now. Somebody thought it was a good idea at one time, and, and they're willing to change, but they need to be convinced that it's necessary. And more than that, as the change happens, these are usually the people who are keeping an eye out for all of the unintended consequences that nobody thought of. Let's call these people the conservatives, okay? The conservatives. I'm not talking about in the political sense. I'm talking about in, in the way they respond to the prospect of change. So we've got the radicals, we've got the reactionaries, and we've got the conservatives. So what do you think? Where are you? Are you a radical who loves change, or are you a reactionary who's just, forget it, or are you one of these kind of suspicious and maybe what we'll see, who knows, kind of conservative people? Who are you? This week we're going to be, begin looking at a book of the Bible that I would say was written by a guy who would identify as a conservative, which might make some of you breathe a sigh of relief, because you're like, conservative, that sounds like me, I like that. That is until you find out who it is, because this summer we're going to be studying the book of James. And James is not an easy pill to swallow. Um, James gives us the cold pricklies way more often than he gives us the warm fuzzies. We're going to find that out. Now, today is just going to be a very brief introduction. In fact, we're only going to look at one verse. We're only going to look at the first verse of the entire book. But before we do, I want to tell you a little bit about this guy named James who wrote the book under the influence of the Holy Spirit. James, some of you may know, is actually the half-brother of someone who certainly would have had 
a reputation as being radical, that person being the Lord Jesus. That's right, James was Jesus' brother. I should say James was Jesus' half-brother because James was the son of Joseph and Mary, and Jesus, of course, was not the son of Joseph, but he was the son of Mary. And, and since James, in the place where, where Jesus' siblings are actually named and listed, James appears first in the list, which probably means that he is the oldest of Jesus' younger siblings. And so James actually got to grow up, or maybe we should say had to grow up, with Jesus as an older brother. Imagine what that would be like. How come you can't be like Jesus? <laughs> right? But, but uh, why do we call James, why do I call James a conservative? Well, actually at the beginning, James would probably be called a reactionary because like the rest of his brothers, James initially rejected Jesus. He refused to put his faith in Jesus. There's an account in the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 21. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is teaching in this place, and so many people want to hear him that it's just the house is just busting at the seams. Everybody wants to come hear this new miracle-working teacher. But Jesus' family shows up, almost definitely including James, and they, actually, they try to remove Jesus from the scene, and the reason they give is that Jesus must be out of his mind. So James at one point thought Jesus was off his rocker. That's pretty harsh. And then much later in the ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 7, the beginning of John 7, James and Jesus' other brothers have started noticing now that their brother is kind of, a, of an interesting person. They've noticed all the miracles that he's done and, and the teaching, and they try to convince Jesus to leave Galilee, where they're at at that moment, where he's been ministering, and they say, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? There's a big holiday down in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of the Tabernacle. Didn't believe in him. Even his brothers didn't believe in him, certainly including James. The Bible does not say when James put his faith in Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 that the risen Jesus actually appeared to James, and many people think that's when James was converted to Christ. I suppose that's possible, although if that's the case, I think that would be the only record in Scripture of Jesus appearing to someone after his resurrection who wasn't already a believer. So I don't know if Jesus gave James that special privilege or not. I wonder if maybe it happened a little bit earlier. Maybe, perhaps it happened when James saw his brother go to the cross. Maybe that's when some of the pieces started to fall together for him, that, that, that his, his half-brother was more than just a radical teacher and miracle worker in Christ. James takes on a rather surprising position in the early church. Let's just look at the first verse of the book for today, just James 1.1. That's it. We're going to read that. We'll go through the whole book eventually, but today just one verse, and I promise that we will do more than one verse on the other days. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Okay, let's look at the second part first. Uh, you, have, you may have the twelve tribes of the dispersion, or your, your uh, translation might say the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Well, what is that a reference to? Well, it obviously has some connection to the twelve tribes of what? Israel, right? Yeah, so this is not, now this is not the time to go into some long discussion about the relationship between Israel and the church, but it's worth pointing out that most of James's original readers would have been Jewish, because James was actually, we could consider him the pastor or the leader of the church that was in Jerusalem. 
The Apostle Paul had gone off to minister in the Gentile nations. Uh, the Apostle Peter, another great church leader, of course, ministered largely, though not exclusively, to Jewish people. And, and of course, the other apostles were all over the place, active in ministry. But James, although he was not one of the original 12 apostles, is the man who eventually became considered the leader, the pastor, if you will, of the Jerusalem church. And as such, James would have had a very tender heart for the Jewish people, the people of Israel. These were the people he considered to be his flock. And James seems to have also retained a great deal of respect for Jewish customs, Jewish traditions, Jewish sensitivities, and of course the Jewish scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament, very important to James, including the law of Moses. And James plays a very interesting role, a very pivotal role actually, in the church's first big controversy. Because there was a controversy in the church, it's in Acts chapter 15, and, and all the church leaders had to get together for a big meeting to talk about this. In Acts 15, we call it today the Jerusalem Council, or the Council at Jerusalem. The issue at hand, a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were coming to know Jesus, and the issue at hand was whether those people, in order to become Christians, had to be circumcised. In other words, the issue was, can people become Christians without first becoming Jews? Or do they have to, because God's people had always been the Jewish people, all throughout, you know, redemptive history, those had been the people of God. So if you're going to become a Christian, do you have to become a Jew first, or at the same time, to follow Jesus? It was a very real question at that time. Well, the Apostle Paul showed up at the council, and the Apostle Paul certainly would be considered a radical. He was into a lot of change, and he was... He was ready for it, and, he can, and, and Paul comes down to Jerusalem, and he's got all these stories about how God has granted faith leading to repentance to all these, these non-Jews, pagans from all over the place, regardless of the fact that they weren't circumcised. And then Peter stands up, and Peter agrees it's totally unnecessary for these Gentiles to be circumcised and act like Jews, noting that would make them obligated to obey the entire Jewish law, and he reminds them this law was such a burden that neither we nor our forefathers, he said, have ever been able to bear it. No one could successfully keep the law so as to gain salvation by obeying it. And so there's a really strong, he rises to speak, and James actually seems to be given the last word. Now, there's no way James can argue with Paul and Peter, and he doesn't want to. James agrees they should not make it difficult for the Gentile believers to follow Jesus. In fact, James, uh, he says, so we should certainly not require them to be circumcised. That wouldn't make sense. And James actually brings in a whole series of quotes from the Old Testament, from the prophets, in support of this position. However, then James says this, and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here, but he says, look, as we do this, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We have to be wise about the way that we do this. And here we see both James's, I think, innate conservatism and his heart for the Jewish people. He says, and this is in Acts 15, 19, he says, don't forget there are Jews all over the Roman Empire. And James here is thinking of his flock, of the Jews that were scattered all over the Mediterranean. And, and, and James says there are certain things that are so abhorrent to Jews that just drive Jews away. And if the Jews see this, they'll never come to Jesus and even the appearance of idolatry. And the other apostles listened to James. They realized that what he's saying is wise, and they incorporated this advice into the letter that they delivered to the Gentile Christians. So these new believers would not get the wrong idea about what it meant to follow Jesus. And if I had to give the book of James a subtitle, this is probably the phrase I'd use. Don't get the wrong idea. Don't get the wrong idea. That's James. Yes, 
compared to the ways of the ancient religions, compared to the old way of Judaism, compared to the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were around at that time. And, and, and for us today, we would say compared to any other religion in the world that you can think of, any religion, Christianity is absolutely different. Compared to any religion you've ever followed or heard about, Christianity represents a radical change. There is no getting around that. Because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we are free. And yet, James says, don't let your freedom give you the wrong idea. There are some things that haven't changed and never will. The character of God has not changed. His holiness has not changed. His desire that his people be holy has not changed. His compassion for the poor and his hatred of injustice have not changed. And his call for people to obey him out of a transformed life has not changed, James says. So don't get the wrong idea. Don't get the wrong idea. You see, there are two great misunderstandings that it's easy for us to fall into as Christians two kind of perversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, a lot of people fall off the road on both sides. On one side is the error of legalism. I'm sure all of you have heard that word legalism. That's where we start to gauge our level of spirituality. We start to measure by how many religious rules we're able to keep. And in its most radical form, legalism can actually replace the gospel by teaching us that we can be saved, that we can be justified before God by our good works especially religious actions like prayer or tithing or church attendance or even the way we dress or the practices that we abstain from. So it becomes, if somebody says, what's a Christian? Well, a Christian who's a person who, who dresses nicely and, and doesn't do this, 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 and this. It's easy for us today perhaps to recognize that as legalism. But there's another side too. On the other side of the fence where a lot of people fall off is an error that we're, I'm going to use a big $64 word called antinomianism. You probably haven't heard that word. Maybe you have, but it simply means against the law, or I would say against the idea of any law. This error says this, that since we become Christians through faith and not through works, then works don't matter. As long as we believe all the right things about Jesus and the cross and we have our theology right, then we're free to live any way we want. And in the end, that error is just as deadly. And friends, that's the error that James is warning us against for the most part in much of his letter. He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea to believe a warped version of the gospel that does not transform us and ultimately that doesn't save us. And James's church, as the verse says here, has been scattered abroad. Much of the Jerusalem church um, you may know had been driven out of Jerusalem and even out of Judea itself by persecution. And these believers settled in different parts of the land and even different parts of the empire. Beyond that, there were Jewish believers all over the Roman Empire who had been won to Christ by Paul or by some other preacher. These Christian Jews are now living in very pagan places. And as such, they're going to face many trials and many temptations. We'll talk a lot about that in the next couple of weeks, the trials and temptations and what the difference is between them. But James, James is kind of like the district superintendent or the bishop, if you will, for all the, the Jewish Christians in the different areas of the Roman Empire. And he considers them himself to be kind of their pastor in a way. And without their pastor there in person to guide them, James is afraid they might start getting the wrong idea about a lot of things. And so he writes, James, by the Holy Spirit, 
to the church in 2023. And so um, this week, here's what I'd like you to do. Right? This is a very, um, a very easy application. Read James. Um, read through the book of James. It's, um, here's, here, in fact, here's, here's the way you could do it, which I think would really be neat. Um, either today or tomorrow, just read through the whole book. It's five chapters, and they're actually all pretty short. So it doesn't take long to read through James. So go ahead and just get a, get a sense of the whole book uh, by reading through those five chapters. And then maybe each day of the week, um, in your devotional time or whatever, just read one chapter of James through slowly. So then you can do one, two, three, four, five. And then um, even if you miss a day, you'll still read James twice before you get back here next Sunday. And if you don't miss a day, read the whole thing again on Saturday, and then you'll have read it three times, okay? So that's pretty cool. Easy to do. Um, this is not Jeremiah. This is James. It's five chapters, right? So just, just get ready, though, for a little bit of a struggle because the problem with James is not that it's hard to understand. The problem with James is that it's easy to understand. And, and it's very plainly spoken to us. And, and James, as I said earlier, does not give us a lot of, um, you know, it, positive encouragement, James, no. It's more like, thank you, sir, may I have another, all right? Um, but, but at the same time, you may be surprised at how, at how encouraging and how full of grace this book actually turns out to be. Now, before I want to let you go, I just want to, I want to share one more thing with you, and it comes from the first part of the verse. James a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, we've talked about fathers a little bit today, but we haven't talked about brothers. How many of you have an older brother? Okay. I do not have the privilege of having an older brother. I am an older brother. I have two younger brothers. And we have a really good relationship as siblings go. We, we love each other. Uh, we like to be together when we can be. But there is no way on God's green earth that either of my brothers would ever refer to themselves as a servant of Paul Titus. It just it wouldn't happen. You, know. you can imagine what it would be like for any brother to make that kind of adjustment, right? To turn to this person you've been so familiar with for so long and say to him, I am your servant, you are my Lord. But in saying this, I'm not just talking about some sort of hypothetical sibling rivalry thing. We don't know exactly when, Jesus, when, when James finally bowed the knee to Jesus as his Savior and Lord, but we do know this, that perhaps more than any other person who ever came to Christ, James would have had to say three very difficult words. I was wrong. I was wrong. Think about it. This man grew up with Jesus. He had seen Jesus' perfect and loving and obedient character on display for decades, and yet he had closed his heart and mind to his older brother for all these years. All those years when he could have been following Jesus, he was deceived. It's very hard for any of us to admit it when we're wrong. Don't you agree? Especially when we're wrong about something important or when we're wrong about something in which we have invested in the wrong direction. And there are some people for whom that confession is just too costly to make and they will never turn around and you'll never hear them say, I was wrong. Anyone, anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as part of that process at some point along the line needs to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. Admit to being wrong. Wrong to think that you could ever run your own life and be your own God. 
Wrong to prioritize yourself over God and others. Wrong to think that you could somehow ever be good enough on your own to get to heaven, or at least to think that you could do something to make up for all the sin that was in your life through good works or by being religious or, or whatever. And somehow you could even the scales. Wrong. Until you realize that only in Christ can you be made right with God. Only by the death of Christ can you be forgiven. Only by the resurrection of Christ can you be justified. And only through repentance, repentance, which means making a 180 degree turn, only through repentance do we find salvation and exercise true faith. And that is costly. It's costly. But friends, fellow believers, when you became a Christian, that wasn't the only time you were ever going to need repentance. That was only the first time. To paraphrase Martin Luther in the very first of his 95 theses, basically said this, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Our growth in Christ, you can think about growing in Jesus this way, our growth in Christ is a series of steps we take in a Godward direction, each one of them in big or small ways requiring us to change direction to admit, in other words, that we were wrong. You want to find the most spiritual people around, those who are closest to Jesus? It's probably the people that have said those three words the most. So as you read through the book of James this week, try to keep your mind open and your heart open and ask the Holy Spirit to use this book to call you to repentance, which means to point, close up your heart in defensiveness, which is so easy for us to do when we read God's Word. Keep your heart open. So, last thought. Uh, what eventually happened to conservative James, the man who had such a heart for the Jewish people and remained back in Jerusalem to guard what was left of his precious flock? Well, he was eventually killed by the people he was trying to reach. The historian Eusebius tells us that the Jewish religious leaders recognizing that this more conservative leader, James, might be willing to maybe reconsider his positions or compromise with them, they went to James and they sought his help in convincing the people not to accept Jesus as their Messiah. But James refused their request. Even when he knew that his life was likely on the line, James refused to disown the Lord Jesus when he was given the opportunity to. And so this man in Jerusalem, and when the fall didn't kill him, he was either beaten to death or stoned to death, depending on the source that you read. See, James may have been a conservative, slow to accept Jesus, careful about the implications of what he was doing, but there are times when even the most conservative among us have to take a radical stand for Jesus Christ. We just never know when that moment is going to be. But when it comes, will we be ready to make a stand like James did for his older brother? Because he's also our older brother, right? Let's pray. Let's stand and pray and we'll be dismissed.